Welcome to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. We're really glad you're here. Whoever you are, wherever you're at, join us on the journey. The book of Job tells one of the oldest stories in the Bible, or at least that's what many scholars think, because it's very hard to pin down how old the story actually is, because it doesn't refer to any historical places, people, or events. But it is thought to be a very old story because in the book of the prophet Ezekiel, Job is mentioned alongside characters from Genesis, like Noah. The story addresses some of the biggest questions in life. Why is there suffering? And especially, why do the innocent suffer? Rabbi Harold Kushner's famous and brilliant book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People, draws heavily on the book of Job. Now, the story of Job has two parts to it, which are related, but have a very different take on the questions at hand. One part is a simple fable or a folktale, and it's made up of the first two chapters and the last chapter of the book. And this is the part that is likely the oldest because there are similar stories in the traditions of other ancient civilizations. The second part is a conversation in the form of a poem that takes up the long middle section of the book. And there are some who claim that this poetic section contains some of the most beautifully written verse um, in all of our scriptures. And there are many ideas about why there are these two parts. And one explanation is that the ancient fable of Job was a well-known teaching about the relationship of God and man, justice and suffering. And that the poem expands and moves beyond the fable because as we will all see, it has a message that changes the meaning of the story of Job. So we'll start with the fable. Once upon a time in the land of Uz, there was a man named Job. He was an upstanding man. He was the richest man in the East. He had 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and seven sons and three daughters. He was respected. He was known to be a pious man It was said that when he worried that his children may have sinned against God, that he would sacrifice to God just in case to keep them safe. One day God was meeting with his council of divine beings, and Satan arrived from wandering the earth. And God asked him, well, what do you think of Job? There's no one like him, a blameless, upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God praises Job in four ways, and nobody else in the Bible is praised so highly. So we are told that Job is truly good. And Satan replies, well, yes, he's a fine, upstanding man, but that's only because you've given him so much success and wealth and happiness. I should note here that this Satan is not the devil with the pitchfork and horns and red tail, but rather in Hebrew, he's called Ha-Satan, which is the Satan which means the accuser or the adversary. In this story, you could think of him as a crown prosecutor who looks for the faults in humanity. Anyway, God disagrees with the adversary and believes Job is so good because he loves and fears God. And the adversary says, well, if we take all that away, he will curse you to his face. And so God said, take away all that he has and we will see, but do him no harm. And so disaster befalls Job's household. A great fire descends and burns all his sheep. Raiders come from nearby lands and kill all his servants and steal his camels. 
A tornado comes and destroys the home of one of his sons where all his sons and daughters were dining and they are all killed. Job is left with nothing. In response to this, Job mourns. He tears his garments, he shaves his head, and, after, and these are all after the tradition of the time. And he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job, Job does not blame God in any way. And once again, God meets with the adversary and God says, look at Job. Despite all you have done to him, he's still upright and blameless and loves God. And the adversary says, well, you have not harmed him, but strike his flesh and bones and you will see. And so God says to the adversary, do what you will to him, but spare his life. So now Job is inflicted with terrible sores on his skin, sores that cover his entire body from the soles of his feet and to the top of his head. And we see Job sitting there in the ashes, scratching at his sores with a shard of pottery. And his wife says to him, how long will you go on? You should curse God and die. But Job responds, well, don't be foolish. We have accepted good fortune at the hand of God, and surely we must receive bad fortune too. And just as an aside, as a contemporary reader, it's quite remarkable that there's hardly any mention of Job's wife, who has presumably suffered the same losses that Job has in terms of home and children. And it's helpful to keep in perspective that this story comes from a time and from a culture that had very little emphasis on the individual. The unit of society was the household headed by the father, the patriarch. And so this story is told in that light where the author is concerned with what has happened to Job not to his wife, and especially not to his children who have all been killed. Anyways, we return to Job. As Job sits in ashes, some friends show up and console and comfort him. They see that Job's suffering is great, and for seven days they sit with him in silence. They are just present to him as he grieves. Now this is the end of the first part of the fable of Job. We see a faithful man who does not question God despite his immense, immense suffering. And if we go to the very end of the book of Job, where we have the rest of the fable, we'll see that Job's life is restored more or less to his former situation. Job blesses, um, God blesses Job with a new home, with more children, and twice as many camels and sheep as before. And Job lives a long life full of days. And so with the fable, we have a simple story of steadfast faith, of a righteous person being rewarded by God. And the fable of Job by itself is a nice little story, but there's so much more to the story of Job. It is not so simple because in between these two bookends of the fable, at the beginning and end of the story, we have a long poetic section that is a dialogue between Job and his friends about God and suffering and justice. And following the dialogue, God appears and speaks to Job. So let's return to where we were, Job sitting in ashes, mourning in silence with his friends. After seven days, Job speaks, and in a long, lamenting speech, he curses the day of his birth. He says, God damn the day I was born, in the night they forced me from the womb. On that day, let there be darkness. Let it never have been created. Let it sink back into the void. Some read these lines as a reverse of the creation story in Genesis 1. Instead of God commanding, let there be light, 
Job is beseeching God not to let light shine on the day of his birth. He's seeking his own uncreation. Later, he says, why couldn't I have died as they pulled me out of the dark? If only I had strangled or drowned on my way to the bitter light, now I would be at rest. I would be sound asleep. So Job is in great despair. He's not lamenting against God, not yet, but he's asking why he must suffer in this way. He seeks the peace that he imagines will come with death, thinking he would be better off dead, wishing he had never been born. So the Job of the poem is no longer the Job who patiently endures suffering that we see in the fable. His friends respond, and this begins the long dialogue back and forth between Job and his friends. I think we can believe that Job's friends really mean well. After all, they've come to sit with Job and mourn with him for a week. But things start to go wrong when they try to make sense of Job's suffering. They start very gently, saying that in their understanding, God is always just and good. And, they and therefore, there must have been a reason that these terrible things have happened to Job. Job, on the other hand, protests his innocence. He says, in essence, that God is indeed powerful, but maybe God is not always just and good because Job has lived a virtuous life and yet he has been punished. And so what we see here are two very different ways of looking at the relationship between God and justice and humanity. Job's friends are arguing for a God who is just, a God who takes care of those who are good and who punishes those who have done wrong. So despite having come to comfort Job, they are essentially telling him that if these bad things have happened to him, they must have been caused by God and he must have deserved them because God is only just. Job, on the other hand, is saying that since he didn't do anything wrong and since he's a good man in four different ways, um, instead God must be pernicious and God does what God chooses and sometimes punishes without cause. The dialogue continues back and forth with the words becoming more heated with each exchange. And eventually Job stops addressing his friends and speaks directly to God. He is angry and confused, and he just wants to understand why he has suffered so much. In Job's last speech, he swears an oath and demands God's presence. He wants to know what it is he has done wrong. He's willing to be punished even further. He does not care. He just wants to be heard. He wants to be in dialogue and in relationship with God. Indeed, isn't this what we all long for when we suffer injustice or tragedy? Is it not the case that we want to be heard and to be understood and to understand why did this happen? And as a people of faith, the mystery of why there should be suffering in a world created by God is sometimes almost as unbearable as our suffering itself. And then God appears and speaks to Job a voice coming out of a great whirlwind. Who is this whose ignorant words smear my design with darkness? Stand up now like a man. I will question you. Please instruct me. And then we hear, we hear the questions that were read earlier in scripture. Where were you when I planned the earth? Tell me if you are wise. Do you know who took its dimensions, measuring its length with a cord? God makes two speeches and neither of them address Job's questions in any direct way. What God has to say is not concerned with justice or punishment. In the first speech, through his questions, God lays out a description of the world God has created. What does Job know about how God controls the sea, 
What about how the snow or clouds are formed or how the rain falls not only on farmlands, but also in wilderness? Who has made the earth that is a home for animals, both those that are useful for humanity and those which are not? It seems as though the purpose of these questions is to impress upon Job the great breadth of creation and its complexity, complexity beyond human understanding and also beyond human control. The point is that it's not all about him, or rather, it's not all about us. God has an entire universe to care for, and we are just a small part of it. Indeed, humanity is not even mentioned at all in God's speech. Theologically minded people in the environmental movement have embraced this speech because it helps us to see our need to care for creation, to understand that the earth is not just ours to exploit as we wish. In this speech, we hear that God's love for creation is deep, and so ours should be as well. And Job responds to God, I am speechless. What can I answer? I put my hand in my mouth. I've said too much already. Now I will speak no more. Job seems defeated, but God continues into a second speech. This time God tells of two terrible mythical creatures, giving lengthy descriptions of Behemoth and Leviathan. Behemoth is a creature of the land. Its strength is in its loins and its power in the muscles of its belly. It makes its tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are knit together. Its bone, tubes of bronze, its limbs like bars of iron. And Leviathan is a terrifying sea monster. It's clear that both Behemoth and Leviathan are beyond human control and almost beyond God's control as well. Now, some people interpret the second speech as just more of the same as the first, a description of two especially nasty beasts who are part of God's menagerie. However, others interpret Behemoth and Leviathan as, as symbols of potentially destructive powers in the world. Behemoth can be seen as a representation of a powerful, even sexual, creative life force and energy the Freudian id or the Greek eros, the human need and longing to create and control. This is a power that is essential for life in our world, but it's also a power that can be abused for wicked means and can result in terrible consequences. Leviathan, the sea monster, is an ancient symbol for the chaos of nature. So God's second speech can be interpreted as meaning that both the creative and sometimes destructive life force, as well as the chaos of nature itself, that are both represented by these two creatures, are necessary parts of the world that God has created and that God loves. And this speech comforts Job, and he answers humbly, I've spoken of the unspeakable and tried to grasp the infinite. I've heard you with my ears, but now my eyes have seen you, therefore I will be quiet, comforted that I am dust. How are we to understand the comfort Job receives in these words spoken by God? Job's friends describe a God who is interested in retributive justice, rewarding the good and punishing the wicked. The God they describe leaves Job no way of making meaning of what happens when the innocent suffer. The God they describe leaves Job feeling persecuted in his suffering, abandoned and alienated from God. But the God of the whirlwind gives Job a vision of creation so much greater 
than he could have imagined in any other way. God is not concerned with meeting out punishment, but instead God is consumed with the love and care of creation. The God of the whirlwind is not a punishing God, but rather is a God who does not abandon us even when we are in the depths of our suffering. When we cry out in rage and frustration, God is with us. Perhaps the lesson is that there is suffering in this world, not because of God's punishment, but rather because we are given free will to wrestle with the urges of our behemoth, our urges to create and to control, our will to power. There's also the chaos of nature, Leviathan, that we cannot control. I believe the lesson in the story of Job is that God does not spare us from suffering, but neither does God ever abandon us. We are never alone. Thanks be to God. Thanks so much for tuning in to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and are thinking about someone who might enjoy it too, we invite you to send it their way and help the podcast grow. We're really glad you're here and we'd love to know what you thought about today's sermon. Leave us a review in iTunes or send us an email at communications at hillhurstunited.com. We'd love to hear from you.